Ryan Ray here reminding you that this show is listener supported at warroommedia.com. You can sign up for the free option, but if you want to support the show, that is where you do it. And oh, by the way, we will be rolling out YouTube episodes, so be sure to be on the lookout for that. Again, warroommedia.com is where you stay up to date with everything, communicate with me, see all of the past episodes, warroommedia.com. Now, let's get to the show. Micah, welcome to the War Room. My pleasure to be here, Ryan. Really good to talk to you. Okay, well, let's get into it. Um, you obviously cover all sorts of interesting things, and so maybe give me the background on what got you into uh, the various interesting topics that you cover. Well, uh, you know, I have a long uh, held passion for science. And, you know, even though I was more interested in music, I remember when I was in high school, the last couple of semesters of chemistry, all but sleeping through the class. But then much to my surprise, I thought, wow, I did really, I felt like I did really well on that last exam. And I was one of like five kids that passed the chemistry exam, you know. And again, I don't consider myself someone who's good at math or, or you know, necessarily inclined in those ways. But I mean, I am just fascinated with the natural world, especially biology, astronomy, things like that. And, uh, you know, I've kind of tried to carry that over uh, into my work as a journalist over the last, you know, 15 years or so. I worked for a period of about six years professionally as a what's now known as iHeartMedia. But at the time it began, uh, at least as far as my employment with um, Clear Channel Radio, I was a producer producing live talk radio uh, and also occasionally hosting live talk radio programs covering everything from politics to local events. But when I got out of that, you know, I tried to blend those two, carry the reporting over into the sciences. And, you know, every now and then looking at the less often explored areas of science, which has been a big thing in recent years with all of the interest in the U.S. government investigations into unidentified aerial phenomena and questions about whether we're looking at foreign surveillance platforms that are, you know, making incursions into our airspace, some of the national security challenges that may arise from that, or as Director of National Intelligence Avril Haines said last year, whether there may be more exotic possibilities behind some of those. So that in a nutshell is kind of who I am and what I do. Okay, and maybe help frame how you view these conversations. So um, there would be a spectrum, right? So some people say that there's no aliens, and some people say, yeah, they're aliens, they're here. Where do you kind of sit at? Well, you know, as far as Alien, uh, that uh, or extraterrestrial, uh, those those terms, of course, relate to a hypothetical model, I guess, that that some espouse for uh, potentially explaining uh, explaining some of the unidentified aerial phenomena. I think it's important to go back, you know, to the history of this. Where I sit on that, I'm agnostic to answer the question. But in terms of the ET thing. You go all the way back to the very earliest attempts by the U.S. military to try and reconcile this phenomena uh, shortly after uh, sightings began to kind of pile up, especially in American newspapers in 1947. We had Project Sign, Project Grudge, and then uh, its successor, Project Blue Book. And some of the very earliest estimates were perplexed enough to say, hey, you know, where could this come from? Is this Soviet technology? And this so-called estimate of the situation dating back to Project Sign, that initial uh, iteration of the government UAP studies, their conclusion in this estimate of the situation was, we don't think it's Soviets, we think it may be something more exotic, perhaps extraterrestrial. But that theory did not appeal to top brass in the military at that time. So long story short, that idea has been with us since essentially the dawn of the modern issue. I'm kind of an agnostic, but I acknowledge that possibility. Okay, and that's helpful. And then the other piece to consider here is when you hear the government speak, are you, they're always lying. Sometimes they're lying. <laughs> they're never lying because that's also part of, you know, with the, the access the information is unless you've seen something for yourself, you're interpreting what you've heard and, and the government's a big piece of this puzzle. Certainly. Um, I think that it's always a, a mix of factors when, when it comes to, you know, how true the information we receive from government may or may not be. Um, and part of the reason for that, I think, again, we can we can find good examples from history. Early on when UAP sightings, as we would term it today, but at that time, first they were known as flying saucers, and then shortly thereafter, uh, the first director of Project Blue Book, who actually took over at the very end of that Project Grudge era, his name was uh, Edward Ruppelt, he was the first to introduce this idea of unidentified flying objects. He was inten intentionally trying to present a more ambiguous term to describe these phenomena. And again, the reason the military looked at it is because they were concerned about Soviet technologies. Um, 
when they began to find cases that were not easily resolved, it became habitual in the decade and then the following decade after that, um, that Blue Book was in operation, that they would tend to throw simple explanations at these phenomena um, to try to downplay the idea that there were things that the military couldn't grasp or easily resolve. Now, uh, that said, in around that same period in history, you know, beginning in maybe the 1950s, of course, you know, we start seeing a lot of instances of U.S. aircraft that were operating in our skies. Um, Oxcart, Dragon Lady, of course, you know, the secret U-2 overflights and things like this, which the general public could not have access to that knowledge at that time. Uh, and so to an extent, UFO interest was, and this has actually been acknowledged in certain histories, you know, for instance, released by the CIA, I believe Gerald Haynes was the CIA historian who writes about this. It was convenient for there to be public belief in extraterrestrial technologies and things along these lines, because it did provide to an extent a cover for some legitimate U.S. secret technologies. And in those instances, they didn't disclose the fact that these overflights were occurring until many decades later. So that's just an example of one of the reasons why it may be the case that sometimes we won't be told the whole truth. Sometimes, I hate to use this this term because it's conspiratorially charged, but cover-ups do sometimes happen. And that's in the interest of national security. But then again, I also think that in recent years, really, the majority of what we have seen in terms of data about UAP namely this ODNI report from last June, uh, Preliminary Assessment, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, it seems pretty forthcoming in terms of, you know, although the specifics were kind of lacking, it's pretty forthcoming about the fact that, hey, there are things that we see, we can't identify all of them. We're collecting information about these and trying to resolve these. So maybe it's a bit of a shift that we've seen in recent years, but throughout history, there are certainly examples that kind of run the gamut in terms of the spectrum of truth and honesty and transparency yeah. to you know, cover-ups and, and things, maybe in the interest of national security. Okay, so let me give you my perspective on the UFO, UAP, whatever the, the modern term is now. Yeah. I, I don't believe there's aliens, so that's that's just my stance. Um, with that being said, about, we'll call it a month ago, a buddy of mine, we're out there fishing on the lake right over here, and we look into the sky, and there we are in actually, like, behind me, you can sit out and watch planes flying into DFW. So we're in the, the flight path. Right? Yeah. So we get tons of planes flying over. And there's a military base to the north. So there's a lot of flight activity, a lot of small jets around here. There's local airports. There's a ton. For a small town I live in, tons of flights going over. Okay, So with that backdrop, we look up. We're fishing, and it's you know it's dark. And he goes, what is that? And we look up, and there is a, a line in the sky of um, – it looks like a white string of lights. I don't know, 20, 30 in a row. In a row. Mm -hmm. It's moving up. It's moving, you know, um, whatever direction, um, and and then and then eventually it just disappears. We're like, oh my gosh, what is it? like? I, I had probably we'll call it five, ten, twenty, whatever, whatever it was. Like, what did we just see? Because it was too. There's so many planes around. We know what planes in the sky look like. It wasn't right. drones. It, there was a uniform formation, and he's like, and it disappeared. So we sit there for twenty minutes. I don't know, five minutes, ten minutes, whatever it was. It was an eternity. It felt like, and he goes. Hold on. He goes, wait, wait, wait. Starlink. I think they had a launch. And so we Googled it. It was Starlink. Okay. But there was a moment in time where everything I believed <laughs> was in question. I was like, oh, how did it, like, how, how? It disappeared. It went up. It went away. And I thought for a second, if you're in 1980, if we were in 1980 and we'd seen this and Starlink was around, we would have no way to explain it because we couldn't Google it. You know, we could ask people if they think we're crazy. You saw lights in the sky that were straight formation and they disappeared. Come on. And and so I am now seeing that a little more sympathetic to the sightings. Um, but with that being said, it it, it, it is just, I wanted to give, give you my perspective. That was my one, my one encounter, which was quickly dissolved. Yeah. <laughs> there was like a five minute period. I was like, oh my gosh, I've missed the boat on this whole thing. Um, but it does go to let's so let's talk about just in general as you go through and you unpack you look into these things sightings um how do um you or the, as a community do we vet sightings is there like a list of most probable things we're looking for to 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 um put them to the side because we know like I think you could tell by your reaction you knew what I was describing the the starling thing about the way you're looking um, so I think you knew that. So is there like a handful of things? Okay, if they say this, this, and this, then we know it's that. And then if in the absence of all those things, then we start to investigate. Is that kind of how these these sightings are, are viewed and looked through? 
Well, ideally, yes. Uh, that's not always how they end up being investigated. Uh, you know, it's great that you mentioned Starlink, by the way, because, you know, since the earliest Starlink Constellation launches, I began receiving reports from pilots who said, you know, I saw something I can't explain. It was like a string of lights in the sky. Recently, there's been a rash of reports by uh, commercial pilots and private pilots as well, some who have military backgrounds. And um, these were first reported uh, after they were collected by a researcher and television personality named Ben Hansen. And Ben really started bringing some attention to these cases, uh, particularly a account provided by a, a former military pilot named Mark Holsey. And they were describing these strange circular movements of some of these objects. And uh, I think we might actually say the verdict is still out on what Holsey actually saw, because he described seeing objects orbiting or moving in circles, which, which Starlink satellites probably wouldn't do. But there's a bit of a caveat, because in the days after Holsey's report first came to public attention, thanks to Ben's reporting on it, several other pilots began reaching out to Ben and saying, we're seeing things too. And they started providing videos. And in the videos that they provided, sometimes you see what appears to be a single light streak through the sky. And then a few seconds later, you'll see it streak through the sky again. And then you'll see it streak through the sky again. And it almost gave the impression that there were objects that were maybe coming up out of a cloud and actually performing like a little movement above the cloud and then falling and then coming back up. I think that in some instances, gave the pilots the impression that there was an object instead of just seeing something moving in little sequential passes over the clouds. They thought there was something that was circling and coming up. And uh, what they were actually seeing, you guessed it, was Starlink. And this has been, to my satisfaction, completely proven. Um, there's a user on MickWest's uh, Metabunk forum named Florky who was able to take, uh, when they had videos, he was able to take pilot data about, you know, where they were headed, what their heading was at that time, the direction they were moving, their altitude, uh, you know, plot that in with uh, planetarium views with astronomical software that allowed them to actually chart exactly what objects would have been seen, man-made objects, in their view at that time. And it's a dead ringer. I mean, this you can't deny that the Starlink satellite constellations in almost every case where video was available could clearly be seen. So what do we learn from this? You know, again, maybe the hardened skeptic would say, ah, all UFOs can be easily explained. I think the more important point here is that there are definitely reports that defy simple explanation. But sometimes when a report comes out that seems to be so strange and, and it really gets a lot of public attention, more and more people start seeing things. Their, their mind is kind of trained on the possibility of what if, what is up there, you know? And then you start getting, this is a phenomenon that goes all the way back to the 1940s. People will start reporting UFOs after a major UFO story makes headlines. 1947, Kenneth Arnold, he sees the, you know, the prototypical classic flying saucers over Mount Rainier. And in the days that followed, it was like an atom bomb went off with all the additional reports that came flooding in. My guess would be the majority of those probably were not UFOs. But really quickly, back to your point, when you say, you know, how do we actually employ a methodology? Again, you never leave with the presumption that, well, UFO must be extraterrestrial spacecraft. That's what we're looking for. And we're going to try and prove that. No, you always want to try and separate, you know, the knowns from the unknowns. And unfortunately, good UFO research usually requires using the data at your disposal to determine knowns, IFOs, not UFOs. The small number of UFOs that remain thereafter it's it's generally disappointing in number, but those are still of great interest to researchers who are genuinely interested in unidentified aerial phenomena. And to me, more pilots reporting Starlink is a great opportunity to kind of, you know, sharpen our our abilities to use data and to more accurately determine some of these these uh, unknowns as being IFOs. Yeah. And you mentioned a minute ago, uh, or maybe it was me, the, the, the term conspiracy. And I think it's important maybe just to kind of unpack that for a, a half a second here. Um, sure. Conspiracy theorist, the term has been so maligned that to talk about conspiracies, you're almost talking about something um, that someone can make it to where you're talking about something radically crazy, no matter where, where, where everything about conspiracy theories. There's always something crazier. Um, but in essence, a conspiracy is just people plotting to do something. <laughs> so a theory around it. So like it, it's, I'm a little bit frustrated that to talk about a conspiracy is, is so bizarre because uh, I mean, all kinds of things are conspiracies. Now, you know, maybe the third dimensional dwarf elf or pigman or something like that. I don't know. Something like that. Maybe a little bit, you know, okay. That's, that's how people view it, but there, there uh -huh. needs to be a sense in which 
if you want to look into things like you know, the, the UAPs, the extraterrestrials, whatever it is, um, that there is a sense in which you're trying to do it with a with a standard that you could be right or you could be wrong, uh, but just trying to hold to hold whatever it is to to a system that you can kind of repeat, a processing rep kind of repeat. Um, and, and, and so I don't know why, why do you think maybe the term conspiracy, I think it's probably a little bit more accepted today, but also still if the media wants to uh, dismantle someone, they say, ah, this person's a conspiracy theorist to, to, to put them to the side. Why is that? Well, there, there's a lot of, um, uh, there's a lot to unpack with that. I think really it, a lot of it kind of goes back to uh, the assassination of the U.S. President uh, John F. Kennedy. At that time, there were a lot of complex dynamics going on. I mean, think for just a moment in modern times, if this, you know, God forbid, uh, ever happened. And of course, this is why we have Secret Service. But of course, Kennedy had them back then, too. Uh, I guess what we didn't have in the 1960s was the kind of intelligence, you know, that's collected in the digital space that we now have, which can certainly help to mitigate a lot of these kinds of concerns. But then there's also the privacy issue that arises from that. In any case, the assassination of John F. Kennedy led to rampant public speculation. And part of the reason being that they weren't able, the public was not able to have a reconciliation with those events. The man who was presumed to have you know, taken the shot, Lee Harvey Oswald, and I personally think that the abundance of evidence does suggest that Oswald took that shot. You've seen television programs that say, ah, oh, he couldn't have taken that shot from that location. I've been up there in the, in the book uh, repository building and they've got a glass fixture they've built around to preserve the you know conditions how it looked at the time uh you know there at the Dallas motorcade when when the incident occurred but as close as you can get to that window which is within a few feet i mean i've stood there and i've looked down at the area where they marked the x and sure enough you know i think that shot certainly could have been taken by a decent uh you know you know someone who's fairly well trained with firearm use like uh, Oswald had been now that said Later that night, as history knows, uh, Jack Ruby shows up and he shoots uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. Lee Harvey Oswald had been paraded out in front of cameras that afternoon. And, you know, press had asked him. They they literally interviewed him. Imagine that again happening in, in modern society. And Oswald at that time had said, uh, you know, I understand that's what I'm charged with. But no, I didn't shoot the president. So he denied it. Um, Ruby says he goes down there to shoot him because he wanted to spare Mrs. Kennedy the trouble of having to see him you know, on his day in court. In any case, with no clear resolution, with no trial, with no evidence that was presented, with no confession from Oswald, the public was left kind of dangling. Well, where do we go? Was it, you know, Cuba? Was it Castro? Was it the mafia? What happened here? Was it LBJ? And at that point, many historians have noted that the weaponization of the term conspiracy theory began to be used to help to try and steer public dialogue so that the media, you know, uh, the military, you know, whomever, intelligence officials, they could use that term and they could inflect it as a pejorative to steer people away from believing things that were conducive to the idea of there being some sort of a conspiracy. And then when RFK's assassin assassination occurs shortly thereafter, they're thinking, gosh, you know, the Warren Commission being drawn out like it was, we got to have an open and shut case. We can't do that because that's what leads to this speculation in the public mind. So long story short, Today, we certainly still see that, especially in a post-9-11 world. But my suspicion is that, again, the weaponization of conspiracy theory has been used as a device to try and prevent discourse that leads to speculations about you know, conspiracies. The, the term itself, as you point out, Ryan, and that's really important, conspiracy theory is merely a theory that there has been a conspiracy. And there, I mean, history's full of them, right? Well, they, I mean, they happen. I mean, you can... You can make it absurd. I mean, to rob a bank, you're conspiring, you know. And so, yes. you have a theory, you know, so it's, it's, it's you know, the the history of the word. If you actually look at the word, it's, it's it's quite silly that we've made it to what it is. But you know, I think I agree. Part, by the way, <laughs> thank you. Um, well, I'll, I'll say one thing, and I brought this up on this podcast before. If you read the book, I think it's called American Cartel. I'll try to link to it in the show notes. But it's about um, the fentanyl, um, the opioid crisis, um, and how the DEA investigated that. And so, if you read the book. This is written by Washington Post reporters. So this is a mainstream news outlet. If you read the book and you just take what they say at face value, and then you go, what would happen if this wasn't large institutions dealing with the federal government? Would they get criminal fines or criminal prosecution? Would they put out agents to pasture or would they go full bore? And we know just because we see how it works 
that large institutions get favorable treatment from the government and the average drug dealer on the streets can get put away for 15, 20, whatever it is, years. And, and, and so when you listen to that, my frustration with the conspiracy thing is when you listen to that, if you're just a reasonable person, you can see how someone could read that book and go, ah, they're all in it together. Because I'm not saying that they are, but how they act is not how they would act with an average citizen. And so that breeds this kind of contempt, this kind of distrust. And so um, I, I'm always stunned when people write these books and they'll make fun of conspiracy theorists. I'm like, you literally wrote a book that said that they put the head agent of the DEA out to pasture so they wouldn't go forward with criminal prosecutions. What else? Like, if it's not a conspiracy theory, it's it's close. And so to me, I feel like I'm pulling my hair out sometimes. Like, like some of this stuff is pretty obvious and not even controversial. And that would actually be the definition of a conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think that, uh, Ryan, part of the, the issue is that when a term becomes weaponized like conspiracy theory and someone presents a, you know, matter of conjecture or, you know, a, you know, a, a topic that requires a bit of speculation. Uh, and there are numerous instances. I mean, a classic era, you know, that, that to me involves a lot of that. And the one that as far as modern history that fascinates me is just the 1990s where we had Ruby Ridge. You know, the siege at Waco, um, the bombing of the Oklahoma Federal Building. I mean, those events, that is such an incredible period in history. And I've watched a lot of more conspiratorially uh, inclined documentary films about that, as well as more that take a, a conventional sort of a historical approach. And at times I can see certain arguments that both sides present. Um, you know, a great example, for instance, is... Um, as 9-11 conspiracy theories uh, abounded, and I've had a lot of colleagues who have really just gone all in on 9-11 conspiracies and uh, having a chat with a Hollywood uh, screenwriter friend of mine uh, back a, a few weeks ago, we kind of were sitting having a beer and, and he asked me, he says, why do you think that is that some people do gravitate toward those sorts of conspiracies? Um, one reason I don't is because I've spoken to people who I believe to be very um, sound-minded, independent researchers who have done their own homework and looked into that and and they were not convinced by the evidence so that in you know prompted me to look at the 911 commission report and i also think that the abundance of the evidence suggests that the traditional narrative about what happened on 911 is exactly what occurred but then i also look at uh, rather i should say in reading these i tried to understand but what would have given rise to conspiratorial thinking and you look at world trade center 7 initially that was all but left out of the narrative. And later, I think there was an actual inclusion of that in the National Institute for Standards of Technology. It also produced a report, I believe. Mm -hmm. Um, But that came much later. And again, it seems that when you look at history and incidents where the public is left to have to speculate about the fundamental causes, when there are missing pieces of the narrative, people will fill in that gap. And, And interestingly, there was a study that was done a few years ago that essentially argues that that is an evolutionary benefit humans have. I mean, when we don't have a full data set, humans try to draw the lines between, and that has helped us evolve. Again, imagine you're walking along, there's a flat rock face here. I can't see what's on the other side, but I start seeing my you know, cave-dwelling hunter friends who are walking in front of me. I start seeing them one by one being plucked off and killed by something, and I'm going to go, hmm. Now, I don't know what's on the other side of that rock, but I'm probably going to avoid it because something there is killing my mates. Right. Uh, this is this is something that evolutionarily has helped humans. So when we don't, when we have, when we are faced with limited data, we tend to draw conclusions uh, preemptively based on what we read between the lines. But that is essentially what leads to a lot of conspiratorial thinking, and you have to kind of temper that with the data and with logic. Which at times, look, I'm going to admit, it can be a difficult thing to do. Sure, we mentioned. Two things there. There's experts and motivation. Um, I remember first hearing about the 9-11 conspiracy stuff, a guy I was working with. He's like, man, you got to watch this thing called Loose Change. Yes. So I went and watched Loose Change. I was like, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. And then I watched, this is, I guess, well after Loose Change had come out because the popular mechanics had uh, done this. Yes. And I watched their stuff. And I remember watching theirs, and I, and I came to a conclusion pretty quickly, which was I have no idea how steel reacts to a plane hitting it. I am not qualified. I, I have no idea. I can't do the math. I couldn't go to college and learn the math. I'm not that smart. It's it's beyond me to understand who is telling the truth. Um, mm-hmm. So the best I can do is listen to the experts and see who I think is more credible. Uh, and I think the popular mechanics guys were a lot more credible in this case. But 
I, but I'm happy for someone to say, well, they're wrong because of this, because I, I'm not actually an expert in any of that stuff. I have no idea. I don't know how any of it works. Okay. I can just listen to people and, and, and make a deduction. So that, that's part of, I think that the process here is that, um, trying to find credible experts has become a little bit harder, especially in a, in a during COVID world and a post COVID world. But the other thing is the motivation. And I think this is the thing that I find fascinating with the conspiracy um, or the UFOs or, or whatever you're talking about is, is we tend whatever side of these debates, you tend to assign motivation to people regardless, right? So if the government issues a report, then you might be inclined to say, yeah, I trust the government. They're, they're not going to lie. Yada, yada. Um, especially take like the UFO stuff that came out during 2020, right? When they started releasing some reports, right? You would say, well, why would they release this now? It makes a lot of, you know, why now? It must be really bad because they're releasing it now. Um, that's one way to ascribe motivation to it. The other way is that they're trying to deflect from COVID. Like, so you can, you can get to this thing and the motivation angle of why people are doing and saying what they're doing becomes very hard. And so it doesn't make sense that a lone gunman would assassinate a pres- uh, the president and then this mobster guy would go shoot him <laughs> a few hours later. That doesn't make sense, but it doesn't mean it's not true either. And so we have a hard time as humans trying to understand other motivations that don't make sense. Oh, certainly. And, you know, coming back, I guess, to the Kennedy thing, since you reference it, <clears throat> um, a few years ago when when some of the uh, intelligence, you know, communications files and other documentation uh, which is of great historical importance. When those were released, uh, this was during the Trump administration. And of course, th- at the time, we had been told that all these files would be released, but the FBI uh, appealed to the president at that time. And and he said, you know, with respect to the argument that they made, I'm going to hold off until there's a further review of some of these files that can be made. It may have been other agencies. I recall the FBI specifically. But in any case, we did get some documentation. And there's some really strange stuff in there. Uh, so I, I don't consider myself a Kennedy conspiracy theorists, but I can acknowledge that, for instance, uh, in those documents, we have, for one example, a uh, British, uh, I guess it was a British news desk that received a call some 25 minutes. And this, again, you got to keep in mind, would be early to late, early to mid evening, I guess, in the UK, uh, you know, because they're several hours ahead, but they received this call saying, watch for fireworks, uh, in the United States, right? And it seemed that somebody was very clearly a- aware of what Oswald intended to do. And to me, I mean, that's pretty astonishing. It doesn't necessarily take away from the historical narrative that yeah. that Oswald was the guy who took the shot, right? But what it does show is that with documentation that's released, especially in the form of uh, government documents collected by intelligence agencies, sometimes new information can come to light. Um, a, a much more, uh, exa- uh, I guess, I don't want to call it mundane, but I mean, I guess a, a more everyday kind of an example of how that uh, process can be applied is a lot of the time the FBI keeps files for decades and decades on cases that they keep open. And eventually, if the case is ever closed, but it remains a cold case and is unsolved. If the FBI releases those documents, there have been instances where civilian detectives, you know, researchers, private investigators have with the data that they were able to glean from the disclosed information from these intelligence agencies, they've actually made significant strides toward perhaps solving some of these cold case crimes, uh, which just goes to show that sometimes after decades, even if, for instance, the FBI no longer has the wherewithal or the interest or any you know real necessity to continue to pursue answers to an unsolved case you hand that over to civilian uh, researchers who might have more time more resources or they just have the the gumption and they want to pursue it and sometimes you know you can actually resolve some of these cases or come damn close to it so in my view i think it's very important again this is one necessity for the freedom of information act and the ability for researchers to be able to appeal to government agencies and where it is reasonable and it doesn't impact or negatively affect national security you know free access to information by the citizenry is of of great importance i think not only for journalists or historians but sometimes in the furtherance of actually solving crimes and and cold cases yeah you mentioned national security I've heard you reference that on other interviews and shows. It's interesting because, I mean, sometimes they will redact a lunch that they have with, you know, the regular Bob because it's national security. So I have a hard time. This is one of those things to where it's hard to buy that they they need to classify as much as they do. Um, I know they live in a bubble. They're insulated perhaps, but 
it's it's almost this is it goes to this motivation thing, but it's almost to the point where it's like, God, do you do you not realize how people outside of DC might think of the fact that you classify or you keep these documents? Because let's be honest with the Kennedy assassination, how many viable players from that, whatever happened, are still alive and around? Like how many? Can't it can't be that many, right? Right. I mean, again, that you you make a really great point, Ryan. The fact that certain information is still undergoing review, I understand in the furtherance of national security, there are protocols, there are standards, and they must be maintained. Mm-hmm. Mainly, especially when it comes to the Federal Bureau of Investigation, you're going to notice, I mean, I've, I've looked at a lot of FBI files that have been released to the public, and of course, with the necessary redactions according to U.S. Code. Those redactions, nine times out of ten, in my experience, when it comes to FBI documentation, are protecting the names of citizens or government employees. I mean, that's almost always what's happening there. Now, with other uh, with other information collected by other intelligence agencies, other information may be released. Uh, for an interesting perspective on that, we could look at the ODNI report on UAP from last June, which I'll touch on in a moment. But um, you know, to your point, I think it's it's important to remember that when information that seems arbitrarily withheld. I mean, for instance, in some of the cases I've been familiar with where I've appealed to the FBI and and gotten FBI documentation, I know every one of the names that's been redacted because of the context, uh, because I know many of the individuals who are involved, and yet they still, as a matter of policy, have to remove that. But yes, for the average citizen, do they feel that this is unnecessary secrecy? Perhaps. Does this at times feed into conspiratorial thinking about, you know, you know, disclosures or the lack thereof? Absolutely. So you make a really important point there. Sometimes the very policies instituted in, in an effort really to protect people's privacy can feed into conspiratorial thinking. But now you come over to the ODNI report from last June, and keep in mind, as of the time that you and I are speaking right now, we were supposed to see another, an updated report. It has not been delivered yet. Uh, the uh, information that we were given based on legislation that passed in the uh, fiscal year 2022 National Defense Authorization Act earlier this year stated that every October 31st, this report was to be delivered to Congress. And again, it's a little unclear whether the the unclassified version of that report would be delivered at the same date. But in any case, we know it wasn't this year. And uh, speaking with a Pentagon spokesperson the other day, I was informed that the DOD would not comment on the report prior to its delivery to Congress, and that was after the deadline. So it very well may be the case based on information I've been currently given that uh, the delivery to Congress was even late. In any case, uh, while we're awaiting that new report, the the, the one from last June presents some really interesting uh, tidbits as far as that um, redaction phenomenon where people kind of read between the lines. Um, my colleague, John Greenwald, who's an excellent researcher and who employs, I mean, probably better than anybody I know, the Freedom of Information Act, as well as related processes like mandatory declassification review, and also just you know general appeals and and correspondence with spokespeople at various governmental agencies, he's amassed a tremendous amount of data about uh, you know everything from UFOs to projects that have been carried out in the past, like MK Ultra. This is again important to history. When we got that report last June, John tirelessly went after the ODNI about getting the classified version released after it had gone through a review process. And sure enough, they did release the classified version to him with all those redactions. The nine-page report we all saw, keep in mind it had a cover letter, two appendixes in the back, so really we only had six pages. It was you know a few pages longer, not much longer, but there were entire appendixes that had been removed from the public version, one of which dealt with the FBI's involvement in aiding and assisting with UAP investigations. Um, all mention of the term, which is a naval term, uh, range fowler. This describes objects that interrupt planned military training exercises, um, just the kind of thing you might suppose that a foreign surveillance platform being used by China or a, another adversary nation might do. They uh, certainly had removed every mention of that term. Um, It's funny because they'd also removed certain intelligence agencies. And one, which I suspect strongly, um, I will say this, it rhymes with DIA, but it's not the DIA. And (laughs) it was redacted, but it's pretty clear which agency had been redacted. In any case, it was strange some of the stuff that was left out of the original report. And it really makes you wonder, I mean, 
how necessary is the withholding of some of this information? If they go through a second time and they're like, oh, we could have let them see this the first time and they ended up actually releasing it. You see, to me, that's a great example of how arbitrary some of the declassification versus the classification really is. You, you mentioned kind of some historic stuff there, and I think it's important. Um, I always like to reference Operation Midnight Climax um, because that, you know, MK Ultra, you mentioned that as well, but it, it's when you go through this process of dealing with the government, um, we all need to have kind of a, a basis point of what we know the government can do, what they have done, what is in the spectrum of things that they think are allowable. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure the general public, especially like my dad's generation is quite aware because that's not really what they grew up with. Right. Um, you know, I've told you about operation midnight climax. He's like, no way. And I'll you know, like, it's, it's, here it is. I mean, there's probably a lot we don't know about it, but there's plenty we do know. Um, and so when you go through this process now of the, of the, of the FOIAs, is it, how do you go about that process? Just curious. Is that, is that a, is that a painstaking, like super expensive process because, or is it something that, that every average citizen should be doing because it's cheap and easy? What is the FOIA process like? So, uh, first of all, the FOIA process for anyone who's unfamiliar, the freedom of information act, uh, is a mechanism through which any person, any citizen can appeal to a government agency, really essentially, um, I would say almost any agency, but there are some that are exempt from FOIA. Uh, and a, an example of one that I could give briefly just to kind of summarize that is NORAD. NORAD, which oversees aerospace or airspace defense uh, over the United States, it also is is working in conjunction with, it's a, it's with a, a Canadian counterpart. And because there are uh, mutual exchanges of information between the North American, or rather the United States and the Canadian counterpart overseeing all of North America, because those two countries share information, NORAD is exempt from FOIA. And so if I were to write to NORAD, what I could try to do is is ask them for information in the spirit of the Freedom of Information Act. And they sometimes will honor a request, but they've blown me off completely. I, I hear others say they've had more luck. Uh, interestingly, my aforementioned colleague, John Greenwald, took a separate approach by contacting Canadian officials with, with NORAD, and they were more, much more forthcoming with information and actually sent him files. He had to pay a small fee. So uh, even some agencies that are exempt from FOIA, you can still gain access to information legally uh, if you know how to do it. As far as the general FOIA and the principle behind it and how that works, you know, what you would normally do, it used to be in the pre-internet era, uh, Ryan, that, you know, you would write a letter, right, right, to these agencies and you would expect to have a response. And what they initially were supposed to do, because back in those days, I mean, if you were willing to take the time to write out these letters and, and pay for the postage and mail them, they were going to, you know, have a time limit of, you know, a few, maybe as many as a couple of weeks or, you know, maybe more than that pending the situation, but there was a, a time limit within which they were supposed to respond to civilians who made these requests. But as technology improved, and we began to have fax machines that made it a little easier and quicker to get in touch with these agencies, and then with the internet and with email, I mean, anybody could sit there at their computer and from the comfort of their home, fire off FOIA requests all day. And again, John Greenwald and others have made a practice of doing that. Um, now, that said, uh, because of the volume of requests that began to come in, some agencies have limited the way that they allow access to information. But, of course, privacy advocates have really taken issue with that. So in general practice, what you would experience today is you would go to the website of, let's say, the FBI, and they're going to have a link to FOIA at the very bottom of their page. And if you click that, it usually will take you to an online setup where you can, you know, you can sign up and you can create an account and you can file those FOIAs through a specialized channel at that agency's website that allows those FOIAs to be submitted and then they can deliver files to you. In my experience, I've got to say, the FBI usually responds within just a few days uh, when it comes to smaller agencies. Keep in mind, FOIA does not just apply necessarily to federal agencies on a state-by-state -state, uh, basis. There are similar laws like the uh, Public Records Act. Each state has its own variation of that. Some agencies, law enforcement, state, you know, and local, they'll get back to you within a few hours. But the principle here is that in, in terms of freedom of accessibility to information by the citizenry, in general practice, these agencies are supposed to deliver that information as long as it's not something that, you know, conflicts with privacy of the general public or an individual, um, and as long as it's not something that could, you know, impact national security. Sometimes you do have to pay 
for information. If there's a tremendous amount of data and you're asking for an elaborate search and the agency is going to have to copy a bunch of records and it's going to take many hours and there's a lot of papers, they may tell you, look, okay, the uh, minimum amount that you said you'd pay of $25, it's going to exceed that maybe like 20, 25 times. Okay. <laughs> so it's going to cost you a lot, but they will inform you here's how much we estimate that would cost. Do you want us to continue this search? And there are some people, if they've got the money, uh, some media agencies, when they file on behalf of, uh, you know, their, their publication or whatever, uh, yeah, they may say, yeah, sure, we're going to pay for that. Give us what you've got. But again, that's essentially how the FOIA process works. And again, there's a lot of good information that not related to, you know, things like UAP or conspiracies. I mean, Media agencies are all the time uh, FOIAing communications, you know, between lawmakers and officials and things like this to try and get information about what was happening behind the scenes, you know, during political controversies. So there are a lot of different unique applications, but fundamentally, transparency laws are very important to me, especially as a member of the media, but more importantly, just as a citizen of the United States. In our country, if we believe in freedom and transparency, we need things like the FOIA. And to your point about, you know, can anybody do this? Yes, they can. And I advise people at home, if you have a question about a subject that interests you, go online to the agency's websites, look at their FOIA reading room, and you can get a feel for the kinds of things that have already been released. And you can look at examples of government information that other FOIA requesters have actually received in the past, and it may inspire you to file your own. Okay. I think we've covered the background. So let's answer the UAP question now. I think we, I think you have, you've you've proven yourself to be someone we can trust with the questions that we want to know. Okay. Okay. I'm glad you you passed the test. I kid, of course. Um, but, but no, let's, let's talk about, so where we're at today, you mentioned there's a report that should be coming out. It had, we're recording on November 8th is the timestamp that Mm -hmm. it will be up probably for another week or two, but just for people wanting to know. Okay. I'll tell you what I've heard about these sightings and stuff. And you tell me what, what I'm missing, where I'm wrong. Uh, and kind of unpack it. So, I mean, I've watched a handful of hours, not not many, of um, the pilots or the people around the pilots talk about the things they've seen, the the things that potentially go in the ocean, they come back up, the things off the side of the ship, and this, that, and the other, and then the the, the equipment um, and how the equipment's counting all these various things um, off the co- east coast or wherever. And when, when I've heard this, a couple things. One, I've seen some of the video. It's kind of hard for me to to make much out of the video. The other thing I thought, quite honestly, is if you are insert government agency here and you're trying to develop new technology, wouldn't the test be to develop a technology that tells our technology something that's not true, right? So we're going to develop a tech that tricks these fighter pilots to thinking there's a hundred things out there when there's none or one or two, um, and then have the pilots that are trying to investigate these things spend a lot of time, energy, fuel, looking for things that aren't there. So that, that's, I'm not saying that's true, but I'm curious. That's kind of my read on some of these things I've heard and other things I don't really have an explanation for. So what have I missed? Where, where are we at? What, what's going on? Because it seems it's always controversial. And um, obviously you're, you're more of an expert on this than I ever will be. So. Well, uh, again, I'll, I'll point out, I don't think there is so uh there's no such thing as a as a UFO or UAP expert, uh, only in the sense that uh, if there are genuine unknowns, they are unknowns for a reason. And that's a very clear reason. And uh, therefore, how can you really be an expert on something uh, that remains unknown? But by that token, I mean, or by the same token, rather, with the data that we've collected, we, we do recognize that uh, there are a variety of potentials as far as what UAP might represent. The government obviously takes it seriously enough to investigate those. Um, and all indications right now with the forthcoming report based on pre-reporting by the New York Times and other agencies seems to uh, indicate that this next report is leaning more toward conventional explanations for the majority of the objects observed in these UAP incidents. That doesn't surprise me. So as as far as, um, let's talk about the pilot sightings and, and those Navy videos, those three historical Navy videos that you referenced. Um, brief, quick, uh, you know, discussion of the provenance of those. The first of those three videos, which remains the most unusual, uh, the so-called FLIR one, which has to do with the so-called Tic Tac, and this related to an incident that occurred off the California coast in 2004. Uh, We can talk more about that in a moment, because I think it remains one of the more significant ones. Uh, That video was leaked online several years ago, uh, and then it was re-released with two new videos, uh, first by the To The Stars Academy, 
uh, back in uh, 2017, and then shortly thereafter, they were published by the New York Times. Uh, those videos leave an awful lot to the imagination. They don't show a whole lot in the way of distinct features, but they do show um, objects that appear to be uh, being tracked using the advanced uh, tracking capabilities of the Raytheon company's Atflir targeting pod. Uh, you got to keep in mind, this is one of the most advanced systems in use by our military. FA-18 Super Hornet fighter jets in use by the Navy had been equipped with those uh, right around the time of the 2004 incident. Not only that, but they'd also been equipped, uh, for instance, the Nimitz Carrier Group, Carrier Strike Group 11 that was involved in that incident. They had also recently been upgraded with phased array radar systems. Instead of the old classic, you know, directional radars, they now had a very highly sophisticated radar system that can read a whole lot more of the environment and, and do so essentially simultaneously. Around the time of the implementation of that radar system, uh, the carrier group was conducting training operations off the California coast in November of 2004, and uh, you, uh, radar operators aboard the USS Princeton in service to the Nimitz, uh, they began detecting these anomalous, very faint but anomalous tracks, which were kind of off the coast of, of Baja, out there a little south of the U.S. border. And uh, at one point, but these are still military training uh, airspace, you know, off the uh, off the coast. At one point, the radar operators, Kevin Day and uh, Gary Voorhees, were the, two of the primary operators on board the Princeton at that time. They began to vector um, some of their fighter pilots out there to have a look. There had been actually a military pilot who had flown out and who had observed some some sort of a disturbance on the water. But about that time, and this is the famous narrative that most of us are familiar with now, Commander David Fravor, who led the squadron, uh, and then the other pilot who was flying with him was Alex Dietrich. They fly in and they observe this object that they said was moving erratically over this area where the disturbance at the at the base, you know, at the ocean level was occurring. And Fravor decides he's going to fly down and try and get a closer look, which he communicates to um, Dietrich, who maintains, I guess, the, the term might be a holding pattern, but she remains aloft. Uh, while he goes down, as he begins to descend toward this object, I don't think that at any time they said that they ever got maybe closer than about a maybe. With just within a mile of the object, but they nonetheless were close enough to get a pretty good look. Fravor says that the object, as he's coming in toward it, he says it turns in his direction and then shoots up past him and just vanishes. Uh, so when they return after having this visual sighting, and keep in mind in UFO parlance, this would be termed a radar visual because the Princeton UF uh, or radar radar operators using their phased array radar system, they detected it, they vectored their aircraft out there, and then there was a visual of the target as well. So this is a classic radar visual. What happens thereafter is far more significant because in the past, radar visuals were about the best in terms of data that the military could collect. But when Fravor returns, he tells the weapon systems operator on board one of the next outgoing aircraft, which was Chad Underwood. He was a lieutenant at the time. He's now a commander as well. Chad Underwood uh, is basically told, Bolo, you know, be on the lookout. And when when Underwood flies out, yet again, the radar operators on the Princeton say, we've got a track. We're going to vector you out there and see if you can investigate. And when they got out there and he was able to lock on with radar, he began filming with the Atflir targeting pod, which keep in mind has a number of different settings. It's essentially, it's a forward looking infrared uh, pod that's going to collect visual information, uh, both in the visual and in the infrared. It's going to be able to lock onto a target and track it even when it's fast moving, and it's designed to do that. So while they're doing that, and this is significant, Underwood, the weapon systems operator, says, as soon as we began to try and get a lock on this object, it was immediately trying to jam our radar. Now, with respect to Mick West, who I mentioned earlier, Mick's uh, a skeptic uh, known for his you know, contributions at the Metabunk Forum and has done a, exceptional work, I think, really helping to weed out a lot of the, the you know, knowns that have been potentially uh, viewed as unknowns initially. Mick has offered some good ex explanations for some of the Navy videos. In this instance, he has said that he believes it's a distant 747. But I would ask if that were true, why it's flying without a transponder? in controlled military airspace, why it's attempting to jam the radar on board a military aircraft that is attempting to track it. You know, and then furthermore, what the video appears to show is consistent with the tic-tac shape that was described by the pilots uh, in the earlier encounter that day, Commander Fravor and Alex Dietrich. So in some total, 
This is one of the reasons that the military maintains, and this was indicated again in Julian Barnes reporting last Friday in the New York Times, speaking with uh, officials on background in advance of the release of this next report. They maintain that incident is still unresolved, and although they say that they're certain it's not extraterrestrials, there isn't really any evidence at all that suggests that. It's only implied by virtue of the fact that we don't know what that object was. But it seems pretty evident that there was an object. I would argue that ball lightning, balloons, you know, things like that, weather phenomena, they're not going to tar- they're not going to actively jam your radar system or attempt to, uh, or exhibit the apparent maneuverability and acceleration that the object did according to the witnesses. Uh, so I would still class the Nimitz incident as unresolved. And if indeed that's a technology, I'm very concerned about the possibilities in terms of who may have that or what that might, uh, what that might represent. And so, Again, I think the important point, the big takeaway here, Ryan, is that it's the minority of cases that are that good. Mm -hmm. But I have spoken with some other intelligence officials who'd assisted in the collection of data for the previous report, one of whom had, uh, and he now works in the civilian sector, but he spoke to me um, off the record and, and again, always honoring his, you know, oath to, to, um, and his duties to government. So, I mean, he's, completely, you know, speaking about what he can talk about. But at one point, one of the questions I had asked was, you know, can you indicate to me whether there are cases as good as Nimitz? And he said, oh, yeah, we've got some good cases. So again, my feeling is that there are some, some, there is some data that is being collected by the DOD that presently falls into what they classified as that other camp in the 2021 report. And again, this is important. And the last one I'll make yeah, last point I'll make about this: the the other uh, category of the of the different categories of things, foreign surveillance platforms, you know, non governmental technologies, weather phenomena, things like this. The other category, this catch all bin, this is the most interesting one because in the report they state that some of the objects that are being observed appear to possess you know capabilities that include um you know just tremendous bursts of speed, you know, maneuverability. Uh, so this hyper acceleration and maneuverability that's something that they said was unique. And then the other thing too was signature management. Signature management essentially meaning that there's an electromagnet or rather an electronic means of lessening your detectability, right? By, you know, systems, for instance, uh, like radar. Uh, Some of these objects are obviously utilizing capabilities that technologically allow them to lessen their detectability. So you, you look at their speed, their maneuverability, and the fact that they're trying to remain hidden, and again, it, it's pretty clear to me that in those minority of cases where we have good UAP sightings, we're dealing with the technology. We're dealing with something that is trying to remain evasive, but is moving with impunity through controlled airspace. And as Commander uh, Chad Underwood had said of that incident, the Nimitz incident, he says, when that thing is in our airspace jamming my radar while we're tracking it, that is effectively an act of war. That's the important point I think we have to drive home to people without ascribing any kind of provenance or assumptions about what these phenomena are, the good cases, I don't care if there's two of them or one of them. If the Nimitz were the only case that were that good, we are dealing with what appears to be a technology that has very little regard for what our military personnel are doing out there. And it's it's doing what it wants to do, uh, whether that be surveillance, whether that be who knows what else. And they're very good at avoiding us. Very, very good. And that, to me, is exactly why it's been characterized as a challenge to national security and a potential threat to aviation. So this goes back to my point a minute ago, which is if I were clandestine government, U.S. government, what I would do is is exactly what you're describing. I'm not saying that's correct, but I would be challenging our best technology with technology that they're not aware of to see where the vulnerabilities are at. Like, again, yeah. I mean, that doesn't mean it is that. It could be Russia, China, whatever. But it would seem that that would be exactly what you'd be doing is running these operations, assuming these are all legit sightings and whatnot, to to show the vulnerability so then you can improve um, the fighter jet technology or the battleship technology or whatever it might be. Yeah, I think you make a good point, too. And although there have been some military officials, uh, you know, some of the aforementioned names I've, I've discussed, sure. Commander Fravor, Commander Underwood, uh, they have all said, look, you know, that's not how – these exercises occur. If we ever had been shown a new technology like that, what would have happened is when we returned, we would have been debriefed immediately and we would have, you know, been given an indication that what we observed had been something of ours, even if the full you know spectrum of data about it was not released to us. That didn't happen. Mm. But to your point, should we rule out the possibility that 
that this could occur? I don't think so. And one of the reasons being that, you know, is this an instance where in the interest, the broader interest of national security, complete and total secrecy, uh, well, maybe not complete and total secrecy because these pilots obviously saw something, but they don't get a full, uh, you know, download in terms of here's all the data, here's all the details, here's how the thing works, and you get to fly one next week. Training begins on Monday. I mean, you know, they may not get that, but yes, to your point, how better to test the efficacy of a new system than in against than against your own military's capabilities. Um, that to me, uh, again, you're not going to go and you're not going to test it off the coastal waters of China, right? Sure. For your inaugural test, you're not going to go and test it in in you know the waters uh, you know off the east coast of North Korea for your inaugural test. No, you're going to test it. Uh, you know, in a controlled situation where you know that, you know, you're not going to get shot down, you're not going to have, you know, other problems, you can mitigate, you know, the the issues that may arise from an actual combat situation, unexpected, you know, that may develop. Again, the way you do that is you test it in your own territory first. So that makes a lot of sense. And with respect to pilots and other officials who have said that's not how things are done, if you had a technology that was significantly advanced enough, and there were reasons for keeping that secret, you know, all bets are off. And it's not impossible that this could indeed be something of ours in some instances where there has been a necessity for protecting that. Well, the other thing would be is there, there's, I guess there's at least two other things I would want to ask if you've delved into. One, mm-hmm. China, Russia, et cetera, have they reported any of this? Because if this is something um, nefarious, then there's no reason to suspect that they'd only come after the U.S. Um, China allegedly wants to invade Taiwan every the week. You would expect to see something there, uh, perhaps. So that'd be one thing. Is there any other reports of this technology outside the U.S.? And the second thing is, this is much harder to track, but how often are fighter pilots just fundamentally wrong about what they see? So they come in and they say, okay. hey, we saw this. It's got to be, we don't know what it is. And then within a week or a month later, it's it's explained away in a benign way that's not worth jotting down. Oh, we've been right. I'm, I'm not trying to be disparaging the fighter pilots, but we're, we're, we're wrong 10% of the time, 20% of the time, 40% of the time. So that would also be a data point that would be relevant to determining how much weight we can give this uh, eyesight testimony. For certain. Okay, so your your most recent question first, and then we'll backtrack to China and Russia and their capabilities. When it comes to uh, fighter pilots and things that they see, this also goes back to an earlier question you had about you know what might constitute a good UFO report and how do you study it. A good UFO report really would traditionally be described as a multiple witness sighting uh, and when there's data that corroborates the testimony of the observers. So in the case of a military, and this is one of the reasons why there is so much, perhaps disproportionate amounts of focus put on the military encounters. A lot of people are frustrated by that. With all this data that's been collected by you know civilian agencies and, and what have you, why do we put so much focus on the military stuff? The Nimitz case is significant because not only do we have multiple eyewitness sightings and the radar visual component, we also have this weapon system, the Apfler tar- uh, targeting pod, that the F A eighteen Super Hornet weapon systems operator in that instance, Chad Underwood, managed to uh, collect additional data about the object. Presuming, and it does seem that there's a good strong case that that was either the same or a similar object to the one that had been observed earlier that day by Fravor and Dietrich. Um, we, we were able to collect a lot of information. And, it, and although skeptics have tried to say, you know, we can't really tell anything about this video um, because there's no audio on it, unlike the other videos where you can hear them describing, wow, you know, you locked to that thing. Did you box him? You know, talking about how they can, you know, when, once they actually get the object in frame and it locks on with the targeting pod, they'll, they'll refer to it as boxing. Um we don't have audio in the Nimitz footage. That's true. But what we do have is we have a couple of instances where Underwood has spoken on the record. Three, actually, that come to, to mind. Uh, two uh, instances where he's spoken uh, once on the telephone and once on video with filmmaker Jeremy um, Corbell. And then also once when he spoke to Matthew Phelan at the um, New York uh, Post. So, And I actually have spoken with both those guys about their conversations with Underwood. Point being, Underwood describes what was happening at the time, what he was doing, how he was going through all the different settings, what he was trying to get, which was essentially as much data as he possibly could. And in addition to the data about how the system works and what he was trying to do with it, keep in mind the whole aspect of the object trying to jam their radar. So we actually do have a lot of supplemental data about that video. All of this data that really helps to corroborate the witness sightings, there's, that's a good UAP case. But as far as 
a pilot being wrong about things that they've seen, when you don't have all that data and you don't have multiple witnesses and you don't have all this corroborating testimony and you don't have all this technical data that helps show that there is a technology in use that's doing certain things that are measurable, when you don't have those aspects, can a pilot, even a military pilot, be wrong? Again, in recent weeks, it's abundantly clear to me that many commercial pilots over the United States, some of them former military pilots, you know, with all respect to those pilots, the data shows that they've been looking in many instances, maybe not all, but in many cases, they looked at Star Starlink satellite constellations and they perceived this under those unique visual circumstances as being something truly anomalous. So, yeah. I'm afraid that there is a good case to be made that some pilots can be wrong, even military pilots. But now back to your first question about China and Russia. You know, with the unfortunate invasion in Ukraine and what we've been seeing, you know, Russia uh, doing and, and it, this essentially, you know, becoming a war of attrition. They're just trying to draw this out and just wear you know, Ukraine down in this attempt. And who knows how long this could go on. Uh, but especially during the hot and heavy early stages of that uh, invasion, as they rolled out earlier this year, You'd think if there were advanced technologies that, that Russia had in its possession that were comparable to the kind of UAP that had been observed by the U.S. military, we would have seen that, right? Uh, and Russia would have used it to great effect. Ukraine actually has some fascinating uh, drone technologies that they've developed and that they have used with great uh, uh, efficacy. Yeah, let, me clarify, let, me, let me clarify the question there. Just sure. Please. I, no, no, I'm not, I'm not saying that the, um, whether or not they have, my, I get that argument. My question is, do these same reports, have we heard these same reports anywhere else in the world, Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, okay. Korea, of, of seeing the same stuff? Because you would suspect that that would be plausible for other nations to see the same thing. That, that was the question. Sure. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, yeah. Well, then we can just suffice it to say that I've seen no evidence that Russia or China have technologies comparable to the UAP that the U.S. has observed as far as whether they're collecting similar data to ours. Yes, uh, for a number of decades, there have been various science institutions in Russia uh, that have collected data about UAP. Uh, you know, some of that information has leaked out over the years, and it doesn't seem to be this, to the degree of interest that the United States has had. But following the publication of the ODNI report last June, yeah, China did come out. And they said that we intend to use artificial intelligence and we're going to beat America to the punch yet again. We're going to solve the UAP mystery. So that begs the question, if it's their technology, um, why would they be trying to study it like we are? And, and, you know, in that very nationalistic way, argue that, and we're going to beat America to the punch. We're going to do better than them. No, it seems that they perceive the reality of a phenomenon too. Uh, but also the, the forthcoming report has suggested, well, officials who are familiar with the contents of the forthcoming report have told reporters uh, that they believe that a, a, a number of these are uh, Chinese surveillance mm -hmm. incidents, but that the military may be careful about how much data they reveal about that so that they don't give an indication to China that we're on to the surveillance platforms that they use, which again, to another of your earlier points, Ryan, you know, Sometimes does the government not necessarily tell the truth or limit how much truth they will deliver to the public? Absolutely. And that's another reason why they might do it, because if the pair, if the American public knows, oh, my gosh, a lot of these are Chinese drones, China will know also. And in the interest of national security, there's a limit to how much can be said about that. Yeah. One, one thing I'd say is that I think it would actually fit the Chinese propaganda to have the tech and then claim that they're going to beat the Americans to it by figuring out what it is, because their whole machine is propaganda. So it's, 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 I'm a little leery when we talk China to, to try to distinguish what do they really want to do on some of this stuff and what is propaganda. So it would make, I could see a plausible scenario where the CCP is like, Hey, we've got this cool tech. The Americans are, are, are saying what it is. We're going to tell our people now that we're going to figure it out before they do so that we look like the heroes against the imperialists. And so they go do that. Of course it's their own tech. Their own people would never know because of how it works. So I, I'm not saying it's, it's what's happening, but that I actually could see the, uh, Xi Jinping and co doing something like that. So uh, I, I could too, though, just to mirror your statement again, there's always a prop a propagandistic element to the way that the CCP operates. Sure. That's, that's both a nationalistic or a cultural phenomenon. And it's also been a political standard uh, in China for decades, uh, maybe centuries in truth, you know, and, and the history, the deep history of propaganda, uh, you know, Jacques Lul and, and, and writers who have examined that, you know, going back to Alexander the Great, it's been a mainstay in politics since time immemorial. 
course it's happening today. And you're absolutely right to see that there's a component there with relation to the UAP thing too. Yeah. It, 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 not, I'm not dying on any of these heels. So I'm just, I'm just uh, saying that. Okay. Um, where can people, obviously you're well studied on this stuff. You've got great insights. Uh, we talk to a lot of people, uh, you have a show, uh, I don't, you have a website, you have all kinds of stuff. So maybe unpack where people can find out more about what you have going on. Yeah. Um, I have a couple of websites. Uh, my personal website is micahanks.com and micahanks.com forward slash podcast is where you can get my main weekly podcast, the Micah Hanks program, where, you know, I look a lot at UAP. I look at a lot of archaeology and things like that. Um, I pride myself in being someone who likes to have serious intellectual discussions about subjects that have long been relegated to the fringe and, and with a little more skepticism at times than you might get on other podcasts. You know, I think that you got to temper your, your interests with a fair, healthy amount of skepticism. Um, but we're always going to have a good conversation and a conversation that's often excluded from the scientific uh, discussions that we, we often see. So anyway, that's the main focus of the Micah Hanks program. You can find that podcast on all podcast platforms. And then um, my journalistic efforts, I'm the editor-in-chief and co-founder of thedebrief.org. And The Debrief is a news website that, you know, covers a lot of things, but mostly aerospace and defense, science, technology. We talk about UAP a lot, too, when there is news to report. And we'll have some significant reports uh, and uh, investigative reporting dropping in the next few days as we're awaiting this new um, uh, ODNI update on the government's current investigation. So lots to look forward to. And you can find that again at thedebrief.org. Well, I do apologize. You had less than a sophisticated talk today with me. So apologies for that. I enjoyed it though. And uh, thank you so much for your time. I think it was a great conversation and thank you. Thanks for listening today. Really, really appreciate it. If you could drop a five-star review wherever you may be. We keep getting on great guests and that's because you keep supporting that show If you want to know more, go to warroommedia.com.